I wanted to let you know that I received a text from Eric Brandau. Many of you will know Eric and Kelsey. Um, and uh, they welcomed Theodore Andrew Brandau into the world on Friday night at 9.52 p.m. And yes, he's uh, a um, significant individual. He was eight pounds, 13 ounces, and 21 inches long. So uh, my understanding is both Kelsey and Theodore are doing well, and we're so excited for them. Uh, very, very cool. So uh, we are thrilled with all the babies that are uh, present around here these days. So. Um, we're uh, getting the nursing mother's room ready. We're get, the carpet is going to go in this week for a bunch of rooms, and the nursing mother's room is going to be up and running uh, hopefully soon, and that's a wonderful thing. So we're excited for Eric and Kelsey, and uh, just really, really glad for them. Uh, John 19 is where we're going to be this morning. Let me pray for us as we get to this passage, all right? Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your help this morning um, as we study this text. Use... Your word, use my explanation of your word to open our hearts and our minds to uh, the reality of what happened on the cross, um, the, the truth uh, of the significant changes that were brought into the world um, in this afternoon outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and the significant changes that were brought into our lives because of this, Lord. Um, everything uh, shifted and altered on this day. And so I pray that you would help us this morning um, to pay careful attention. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do your work in our hearts as we listen, as we study. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. The uh, earliest known drawing of Jesus on the cross is dated from, the earliest one that we have, is dated from 200 A.D. And that drawing depicts a man standing off to the side of the cross with his hand raised in worship, and he is looking at a human being on the cross. It's the form of a human being, but the human being has a donkey for a head, and his buttocks are exposed in shame on the cross. And there's an inscription under this drawing that says, Alexamenos worships his God. Of course, that drawing would have been a sentiment that was uh, fairly normal at that time, mocking Christians who worshiped a crucified God. It made no sense for a typical Roman, even a hundred years later, because crucifixion demonstrated Roman power and authority. I mean, it was obvious when they crucified someone who was in charge. And a crucifixion showed the worthlessness of the one crucified, the, the dehumanization of that individual, not even worth anything. We're gonna throw them on the cross like an animal and their weakness, and demonstrated Roman power and authority. One author, Christopher Watkin, put it like this, the writhing and cries of the dying provided the perfect choreograph and soundtrack to this advertisement of Rome's merciless power. 
these human hoardings broadcasting until their last tortured breath, the imperial message, Rome is everything, the crucified is nothing. I was in Hallmark this past week getting a Valentine's Day card for someone, and it's interesting because when you go into Hallmark and you look for a card in almost any section that you're looking for a card, you'll notice on certain cards, the background of them, there'll be a little cross in the corner. And that cross in the upper right-hand corner is trying to tell you and to indicate that this card is from a Christian perspective. Now, a first-century Roman would be flabbergasted to see a symbol of death and torture on a card that you are supposed to give to someone to convey affection and love. Those two things did not go together at all. So what happened? What happened that an instrument of torture and death and dehumanization depicting the power of the Roman Empire has so shifted that now Hallmark puts a cross in the corner of a card that you're going to give to your loved one on Valentine's Day. What happened? Christopher Watkin again. The cross of Christ takes the ultimate symbol of Roman power and brutality, a symbol that met with disgust and was banned from polite conversation, and successfully recodes it as an icon of love and service. And you can tell that Jesus won because of where we're at today with the depiction of the cross. There is no more Roman authority and Roman empire, and there are millions and billions of Christians around the world attesting to the love and the sacrifice of this one who died on the cross. And to understand how this revolution came about, you and I need to continue to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. We need to study this and understand from the Gospel of John what really took place that so radically shifted the world on that day. We started this last week, and here's what we're going to see. Four powerful blessings. And I use that word intentionally, powerful. And you can see that power in the shifting of the meaning of this symbol. Four powerful blessings that Jesus's death brings as God's promised Messiah. We started this last week by looking at verses 17 to 27. And I'll go back over that one and then we'll get to the second one that's on the screen here. But first of all, from verses 17 to 27, he suffers and loves others as the righteous king. So the crucifixion account here, if you go back and read through the whole thing from 17 to 42, the crucifixion account here in John is filled, as you'll see this morning, with Old Testament quotes and allusions. In verses 17 to 22, I won't read the whole thing, but you have Jesus on the cross, crucified, and you have Pilate and the chief priests arguing about this inscription that's put above his head, the king of the Jews. And the chief priests wanted Jesus or wanted Pilate to take it down and write, he says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate decides to just leave it up there. Neither Pilate nor the chief priests believed that that was true. The chief priests were denying it. Pilate was mocking them with the inscription. But ironically enough, we know that this is actually the case. He is the king of the Jews, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament expectations and hopes of a coming, delivering king. 
And we know he's connecting back, that John is connecting us back to David and the Davidic promises because in verse 24, John makes that connection explicit. He quotes this psalm in verse 24, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is from Psalm 22, which is a psalm by King David. And in that psalm, David is writing of his own experience, but he also understands that in some way, he's writing about the future experience and life of the Messiah, of his descendant. And so what's true of him will be true of this coming king, but in a much greater way, with much bigger implications and more magnitude. And so David in Psalm 22 suffers as the righteous king, and then Jesus suffers as the perfectly righteous king without any blemish and any sin, and he does that out of love for others, which is what we see in verses 25 to 27. You have that little story where Jesus, in the moment of his greatest agony and pain, turns his attention outward and cares for his mother and makes sure that his earthly mother is taken care of. And that is an exact picture of what he does on the cross. Not focused on himself, as we read this morning in Philippians 2, but instead he went to the cross because he was focused on others, loving others, and wanting to redeem us from our sins. It's the entire reason that he comes and suffers and dies. And so that's the first powerful blessing that we see in the cross is that he suffers and loves others as the righteous king. But let's get to the second one here in verses 28 to 30. He bears reproach and shame so we can be free. Jesus came to earth as a man to accomplish certain works. We've seen that in the Gospel of John. There were certain things that he had to do, that the Father had called him to do. Remember what he prayed in John 17, 4? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And it's in light of that knowledge that there were certain works that he needed to accomplish and finish that we get to these words in verse 28. Look there. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he had done what he needed to do. He says this to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And so he says this in verse 28, knowing that the actions of verse 29 would take place. Look there. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put, on a, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So this would have been a cheap, sour wine used by the soldiers. A jar of it evidently was kept nearby there. And I don't want you to confuse this with the wine that is mixed with myrrh that was offered to Jesus on his way to the cross. He refused that because the wine mixed with myrrh would have dulled his senses and would have kept him from experiencing all that he experienced on the cross. But this is not the same thing. This would have assuaged his thirst. And he specifically, it specifically says here that he calls out that he's thirsty in order to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, I've repeated this before, but I want to say it again to make sure that this gets in your brain as you're reading and studying your Bible, okay? When we think of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, oftentimes we think of a prediction 
and then a single event that's going to bring about the promise or, or the prediction that was given in the Old Testament. The problem with that is that that's not how the Bible often works. It does work like that sometimes, but not every time when it uses this word fulfill. You can look through the Old Testament and you will not find a passage that says the Messiah is going to come, he's going to get thirsty on the cross, and they're going to give him sour wine. You're not going to find it in the Old Testament. It's not a one-to-one -one promise or prediction and coming to pass of that prediction. So we need to ask ourselves, what, how does this fulfill the Old Testament? What is John talking about here? And what does Jesus understand as he knows that this will fulfill the Old Testament? Well, oftentimes, we talked about this last week, but I'll repeat it just so you understand and know. Oftentimes, the fulfillment of Old Testament passages is talking about the whole psalm or passage in which it comes. And it's not just teaching us that Jesus will be the Messiah. It's teaching us what sort of ministry he's going to have, what sort of Messiah he's going to be, what's going to be the result of his work. That's what a fulfillment is telling us. There are expectations in the Old Testament that he comes and he realizes in the new. And so Jesus here says this because he wants us to think about Psalm 69. I want you to turn in your Bible back to Psalm 69. Hold your place in John 19, but Psalm 69 is an important psalm that we need to look at briefly this morning. So this is another psalm of David. That should be no surprise to you here. And in this psalm, the circumstances are that David, as king, is surrounded by his enemies. His enemies are bearing down on him. And over and over again in this psalm, he mentions the reproach and the shame that he receives from his enemies. The mockery the disdain that his enemies have for him. Listen to verses 6 through 12. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Are you, are you seeing a pattern here? A theme that he's hitting on, David is, in this psalm? Verse 11, when I made sackcloth my, my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. How mocking is that? Drunk people are making songs about him, his enemies, right? It's disdain, it's shame, it's reproach over and over again. And David understands that he, as God's representative, as the king, is bearing that. Now look at verse 19 of Psalm 69. You know my reproach and my shame, and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. 
They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And so, you can go back to John 19. When John says that this action of receiving the sour wine, the wine vinegar, fulfills Scripture, he's talking about the pattern of David as the king of Israel, as God's representative, receiving reproach and shame on behalf of his people. Now, we talked a little bit last week about the physical pain and suffering of the crucifixion. I tried to describe that to you just a little bit at the beginning of our time last week. Obviously, this was a horrific way to die. But when you read the Gospels, you really don't get detailed description of the physical suffering that Jesus goes through. I mean, at all. Look at John 19 and verse 18. We looked at this last week, but John states this so simply that it's easy to just read over it. Verse 18, there they crucified him. That's it. That's all you get. No description of the nails of his feet. Like None of that is mentioned here. The blood and everything. It, it, he doesn't go into the physical suffering. But what does he do? What have we seen throughout Jesus' trial and then here on the cross behind why Jesus is quoting Psalm 69? We do see Jesus being mocked. We see him being scorned. We see him receiving the reproach of his enemies. That is what he endured on the cross. One author put it like this. Executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. That was the point of crucifixion. That's the main thing to take away from this. The real meaning of the cross is found for you and I here. The shame and rejection that Jesus experienced on the cross and not necessarily the physical torture of it. The author of Hebrews actually makes this quite clear to us. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, what? Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This literally says that he shamed the shame. He shamed the shame and the reproach that was coming his way. He looked down on it because he was able to look ahead and see the joy that awaited him in redeeming his people from sin. Now, why is this so vital for you and I to grasp? What's the payoff here? To focus on the shame and the reproach and the rejection. Well, one reason is because that's where Jesus goes with this quote from the Old Testament. But he endured the full shame and reproach that comes from sin so that you and I wouldn't have to, so that we could go free, so that you could be free from the guilt and the shame of sin. 
Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden right after Adam and Eve sinned? What happened? They hid. Instant shame, right? That is the first thing that happened to Adam and Eve. They're suddenly so aware of their inadequacy, of the rejection, of the reproach, of the shame of what they had done. They try to hide from God. They try to cover their naked bodies because they are filled with shame and rejection and reproach. And that's what sin does. It brings all of that to us. Humiliation. And Jesus took all of that on himself, every single bit of it, in order to free us from it. He endured it so that you could be confident in the forgiveness of your sins and so that you, according to Hebrews, could boldly approach the throne of grace, knowing that you are forgiven and it's wiped away. And you don't have to revel in that shame and sit in that shame anymore. That you can, the moment you sin, and the moment you feel guilt and shame over that sin, that you can look at that sin, understand what has been paid for on the cross, that the shame and the rejection and the distance from God has been taken care of, and you can repent of that sin and turn from it and turn to Christ confident that he took all of it for you. And you can be confident he took all of it because look at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He lays down his life. No one takes it from him. And he here says, I have done all that needed to be done in order to accomplish your salvation fully. The work that the Father has given me is done here in this moment. That brings us to our next powerful blessing. He bears reproach and shame so that you can be free, and he dies as a substitute to bring judgment and deliverance. 31 to 37. Look at verse 31 with me. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So it's getting late in the day on Friday, and it's Passover week. It's a very important Sabbath the next day. Well, that begins at sundown that day. And so the Jews are very concerned here, which I think somewhat ironically, right? They've just crucified an innocent guy, but now they're very, very concerned about this one particular Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 21 that says this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so they're very concerned about breaking this law, particularly on a Passover week Sabbath. And so they go and they ask Pilate if they can get these guys down off the cross before sunset on that Friday evening. Now the tactic that the Romans used in order to hasten the demise of the ones on the cross is they would go around and they would break their legs. Obviously, the experience of having your legs shattered with an iron mallet would bring shock enough to maybe kill some of them in their weakened state, but if you survived the initial blow to your legs, you're no longer able to push yourself up on that seat that you were sitting on, 
to allow your lungs to take in oxygen. And so you would die from asphyxiation very, very quickly. So the Romans grab their iron mallet and they start to do their work. Look at verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So they don't break his legs. Instead, they pierce his side with a spear. Look at verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, I'm not a doctor, so maybe we can ask a doctor about this. And I've heard different theories about why the water and the blood come out, and I don't want to get into the medical reasons behind all of this this morning. And there are a couple of why this might have happened. But I do want to talk about three different things that we learn, sort of levels of meaning here of the blood and the water coming out. And I think John is conveying all of these things to us as he writes this and notices this. You'll see later in verse 35, this is obviously significant for John. And so I think he's conveying a number of different things. First of all, this tells us that Jesus was truly human. Now, I know that may seem crazy to you to think that he wasn't a real human being, but this was a major heresy in the church later on. In the time of the New, or past the New Testament, in the early church, there were people that didn't think Jesus actually had a full human nature or even a human body. Of course, that would be tragic for us because we could not be saved unless he was fully human. So this tells us that he was fully human, that he was truly human, and it tells us that he actually died on the cross. That matters. He didn't just pass out. He didn't fight back to consciousness after lying in the tomb for three days without food and water. He died, and John confirms that he died. Look at verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. John is telling us this to confirm that Jesus is dead and making a point of it that he's truly human and truly dead in order that you and I can read this account and be filled with faith and belief in what God has done. So that's the first thing to notice about this, one level of meaning here. The second thing is, that the water and the blood have symbolic significance that they come from Jesus at the, the time of his death. And they have symbolic significance on a couple of levels. One is they point us back to the Exodus. The whole Exodus story where the blood of the Passover lamb provides deliverance through the death of the Passover lamb the Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt. And then later on in the Exodus story, when Moses strikes the rock, water flows out of the rock and meets the needs of the people. And so I think this is pointing back to Exodus, but it's also pointing to some different elements of the Gospel of John. Jesus speaks about his blood and how necessary his blood is in John chapter 6. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last 
day. His blood coming from his death, his sacrificial death, provides atonement for sin. And then the water coming provides the provision of the Holy Spirit for his people. John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So forgiveness and life in the Spirit flow to us from the death of Jesus. There's a third level here that I think John is getting at. The water and the blood point us to the fulfillment of the Old Testament passages that are given in verses 36 and 37. Look there with me. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. All right, track with me here, okay? All right. These two quotes, again, are picking up on major patterns and themes in the Old Testament. This is why it's so important that you not just look up the text that's quoted and go, oh, that's neat. It's used in the New Testament. That you're familiar with your Old Testament, that you read it and understand it. Because there's a whole storyline that is being evoked here when John quotes these Old Testament passages. First of all, you're probably familiar with verse 36 and the quote here. Jesus brings about a new exodus as the true Passover lamb. And that's what John is getting at. Of course, Exodus 12 and verse 46, I can't remember, I did put it up here, wonderful, says this about the chosen Passover lamb. It shall be eaten in one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And so, John sees a fulfillment of this in Jesus, indicating he's the true Passover lamb. But interestingly enough, David picks up on this reality of the Passover lamb, and in Psalm 34 and verse 19 and 20, he talks about himself as bringing deliverance to God's people and God preserving him in the midst of that by not allowing any of his bones to be broken. Fascinating. Exodus 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And so I think David here is reading back and understanding that there's a deliverance like the deliverance provided by God in the Exodus that will happen again. And he's seeing this pattern of God doing this type of thing. And he's saying, this is happening in my life. God is preserving me in the same way. And I look forward to the day when God is going to do that through his true king. Look what he says right after that in Psalm 34. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so John sees this whole pattern in the Old Testament and says, Jesus is this pattern par excellence. He is the final fulfillment of this pattern, the ultimate true Passover lamb, king, 
everything that we need. He is that. Then, verse 37, look there again with me. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is quoting Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Now, I'm not going to take you back there. I would encourage you to go read chapters 11 and 12 and 13 of Zechariah. I think you will be enriched by it. There's a ton that we could say about that passage, but let me try to make it as simple as I can for you this morning, okay? In this passage, Zechariah, a prophet, is looking ahead to the day when God will provide salvation for his people in Jerusalem. In verse 10, I think I have it on the screen here. Here's what he says. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So in verse 10, he says that on that day, mercy and grace are going to come to God's people as the king of Israel is pierced. But notice the language in verse 10. Who does God say is the one who's going to be pierced? Him. God says they're going to pierce me on that day. So at the same time, the one who is pierced is going to have to be a king of Israel, a person, and he's going to have to be God. And the result of that is there's going to be great mourning over the pierced one. And then look what he says in verse 13. On that day, or chapter 13, verse 1, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So, in John 1937, John looks and says, man, what Zechariah promised and predicted and anticipated about cleansing and grace and mercy coming through Yahweh being pierced and the king of Israel being pierced, that is exactly what is happening here as Jesus dies on the cross. Now, it's interesting in John 1937, he says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Who are the they here? Well, at the crucifixion, there would have been disciples of Jesus there, like John, who saw this and witnessed it and responded in faith. There also would have been soldiers, and there would have been Jews there who witnessed this whole thing and had a different reaction. And so I think the mourning in Zechariah can come from two directions. You can see the crucifixion of Jesus. You can see the piercing of Jesus and the grace and the mercy that he brings. And you can mourn over the sin that put him there, your sin. The other reaction you can have to this is you can look on the piercing of Jesus and you can divide his garments and cast lots and you can scorn him and reject him. And one day that rejection will end in mourning. And it'll end in mourning when you stand before the pierced one at the judgment. And you have to give an account for what you did with his word and with the testimony that John affirms here is true. And so this powerful blessing is that Jesus dies as a substitute to bring both judgment and deliverance. And then lastly here in verses 38 to 42, he's treated as a sinner to rescue many. And I'll explain what I mean by this. Look at verse 38. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. This was a dangerous thing for Joseph to do. It was not wise to be associated with someone who was crucified. That person was an outcast of society now. They had been rejected and condemned by the Roman authorities, and you did not want to be on the opposite side of the ledger from the Roman authorities. So he's taking quite a risk here in asking Pilate for Jesus's body. Mark, in his gospel, tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, so he was quite powerful in Israel. We also learn that he was a very wealthy man, so he had a lot to lose, loss of reputation, he's risking his wealth and his livelihood. So he's putting it all on the line here. Pilate gives him permission to take the body of Jesus down, probably one last slight to the Jews to give him over to someone who would take care of his body. And then we see another old friend here that we've encountered earlier in the Gospel of John. Look at verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night from John 3, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. The spices, and this was a pretty standard amount, would have been helpful to mask the odor of decay. So they apply that here. Look at verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And then finally, after they've done this work, I'm sure hastily, they take the body of Jesus and they put it in a tomb nearby because the sun is about to go down. And when the sun goes down, Sabbath begins and you have to cease work at that moment. Look at verses 41 and 42. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, a couple of points to make here on all of this. First of all, John recounts this to make sure we know Jesus was dead. He's really dead, and he's really buried. He's in a tomb, not with a bunch of other bodies. He's in a tomb by himself. And he was put in the tomb before the Sabbath begins. So you have this whole story here of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, Nicodemus, taking care of the body of Jesus and getting him into the tomb. Now, you might be aware of this, but there's an Old Testament passage that I want to show you that speaks to this whole situation And I think it's in John's mind as he's writing this, even though he doesn't quote it here. So I want you to turn to Isaiah 53. And this is where we'll end up this morning. And it's important that you turn there. Isaiah 53, no slides for this one. If you're a Christian, this is a familiar passage to you. I am sure of it. This is a passage that promises that the servant of God will suffer and die to atone for sin. Very familiar words here, right? Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's very clear when you read this passage that you see echoes of this happening in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. No doubt about it. This is talking about Jesus as the servant. But now look what happens in verses 8 and 9. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And this is why I say he's treated as a sinner throughout this whole process from this. And I think you can see why John writes about Joseph here, because he made his grave with the rich man. Joseph took care of his body and put him in his grave. And I think that's pretty clearly what this is pointing toward. And that's a cool connection, but he continues on to talk about what happens. Verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I think it's talking about the prolonging his days, about the resurrection. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, his victory, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You can see in verses 10 through 12 how many times it mentions the word many, because many are going to have their sins paid for because of what this servant does. Many will receive salvation because of his work, because he bore their sins. Now, Isaiah 53 is a wonderful passage. And it's so helpful to read this as believers. And it promises and anticipates the death of Christ and his resurrection and the events surrounding his death. It promises that many will come to freedom through his sacrifice on the cross. But for some reason, we stop reading there. And we don't go on into chapter 54, which is a part of this whole thing, and we don't get to the incredibly joyful expectation of chapter 54 and verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Okay, who's the barren one here? It's Sarah. It's Abraham's wife, Sarah. Who's the married one? Tagar. And we know that for sure, and I'll talk about it in a second, but from the New Testament. Remember the story in Genesis? What happens? Sarah couldn't have children. And she was too old to have children. And then what happens? God makes a promise to her. 
And he tells her that she's going to have to trust him. And the beauty of this passage is that the Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Galatians chapter 4. And here's what the connection he makes. He says that the children of Sarah are the children of promise. They are those who have believed, who have trusted in God and trusted in the provision that he has made. And so the promise here is that based on the work of the king, the Messiah in Isaiah 53, that there will be rejoicing because the barren one, Sarah, her children will be multiplied and multiplied and multiplied because her children are the children of promise. You're children of promise if you trust and if you believe. And then look at the beauty of the language in chapters 54 and verses 2 and 3. I love this. These are words to Sarah. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. What is God telling her? Look, Sarah, you live in a tent. And in order to have this many children, you're going to have to stretch out your cords. You're going to have to strengthen your stakes. You're going to have to enlarge this thing because they're coming. The children of promise are coming in. Look at verse 3. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So God promises here that based on the work of the servant in Isaiah chapter 53, that the children of promise, the children who trust in him, who believe in his work, who trust the atonement that he has made for sin, those children will be so many that Sarah's going to just have to keep stretching out the cords of her tent. She's going to need a bigger tent and a bigger tent and a bigger tent to hold them all. That's the promise here. And that's what happens through the work of Christ. He was treated as a sinner in order to rescue many, many by the word of the promise. And it's because of that and because of these blessings, these powerful blessings that we've talked about that are on the screen here, because of God enlarging the tent of promise and stretching out the cords, that now you and I live in a world where the cross is a symbol of love and not of Roman brutality. Everything has been flipped on its head as it should be. And it's why, get back to the title of these last two weeks, The Power of the Cross, it's why the preaching of the cross, the understanding of what happens through the work of Jesus, is the power and the wisdom of God. It's a message that brings people in as they believe. And it's why you, if you're a believer this morning, and I need to constantly remind ourselves of the power of the cross day in and day out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for this passage. We're thankful for the work that you did for us on the cross. Words are inadequate to express this in many ways, but I pray that you would help us, teach us, instruct us, make application to our hearts so that we can be encouraged and challenged and grow in our faith and our belief in you and honor you with our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray.